0: feels um, you know uh, a little unusual to teach this way Uh, seeing you in your tiles doesn't uh, give me the same cues that were all ready for a dharma talk and that I could start and and I don't know if I should wait a few minutes for latecomers to come or or how we should be but uh, if you can hear me Uh, if you could uh, indicate that with maybe thumbs up or something and uh, I kind of assumed you heard me but the thumbs up at the beginning is also just it kind of reassures something in me just like oh yeah we're connected (laughs) that uh, you know we're in it it together and uh, so thank you for doing that I'm delighted I'm delighted in being here being part of this and, and delighted that uh the image of many of you is practicing in New Zealand, Australia, and different places have come together this way. It's really a delight. And I feel fortunate. For the talk today, I'd like to have, have three parts. <clears throat> the first has to do with to discuss kind of an underlying principle or attitude for this kind of practice. The second is to say a few more introductory words about this theme of the retreat, the cultivation and the insights. And uh, <clears throat> the third is to talk specifically about the first cultivation, cultivation of stability. So to begin um, with this attitude and principle, um, I want to say that uh, when we offer and I use the word carefully, offer our attention, our mindfulness to our lives, it resonates with something in the heart. Something in the heart or something in the inner life responds to that. Something in reality responds to that. That a moment of mindfulness is not just a moment to itself, but it itself is a condition that something responds. And what is it that responds? What is it that comes? And uh, I can partly talk about it in terms of refuge, but I'll first talk, talk about it uh, with the analogy of being a host for someone who comes to stay at your, at your home. So imagine that uh, someone like, I don't know, the Dalai Lama, you know i just want to i heard about this practitioner in town and i'm, I'm in town and i thought i'd probably like to and have tea or something and you can't believe that dalilah wants to have tea with you and so and you have you're the host for this event and no someone else that you respect a lot and uh, the person would come and you might have cleaned up the place a little bit beforehand just so it feels nice for the person to be there. Perhaps you have a favorite chair, really comfortable chair in your living room, but you offer it to your your guest. Of course your guest can have that. You have your favorite tea that you do not much left of, and you're, it was like something precious for you. Maybe someone important gave it to you, and you really want to savor it. You're kind of going through it very slowly. But there's like one teapot left, and it's, you know, your guest. So of course you offer the guest your best tea that you have. And um, so there's an offering of respect that a host will give, an offering of care, of generosity that a host gives. Simultaneous to that, there is a kind of a surrender of oneself in that process. A kind of a giving up of being self-centered like that's my chair it's my tea you know who's this person coming here And you know I'm just going to give him water I'm sure he's a monk after all and, you know yeah, I have important use for this tea it's my tea it, it probably wouldn't be how you were you'd probably surrender parts of yourself that maybe it wouldn't for other people even and um, like say the Dalai Lama has no place to sleep that night and you have like a one bedroom apartment and one little bed, of course you can have it. I'll sleep on the living room floor, you know, whatever, for you. And uh, there's a surrender that goes on, this, this reverence, this deference almost, that, uh, that um, you know, of course some people would do that. And we see that sometimes in parents and how parents of newborn babies, they gave up so much of themselves in that process, the first months, the first year. Um, You know, it's almost as if there, at least for me, a member of my first child, I was kind of happy in a certain kind of happiness that I was no longer part of the picture, (laughs) except, you know, like my, I wasn't important in a certain kind of way anymore. It was just like the, the baby, you know, and it didn't matter if I didn't get enough sleep. It didn't matter if I, you know, I don't know everyone saw me in my pajamas and I went to town with, without having showered for three days. You know, it, it all it all didn't matter. just, I had to take care of this kid and just give give yourself over. And it felt kind of freeing, this, this kind of abandonment of certain kind of self-concern that was kind of second nature to have. So refuge is something like this as well. Uh, in English, we talk about, or in Pali, we use the word gachami, meaning... I go for refuge, and so it is something you do. You bring your whole self, but practice involves what you do and what is done to you as a result. It isn't just about what you do, and you know the theme here is you know we offer the conditions, and then something responds to those conditions. So you go for refuge. In, in Chinese and Japanese Buddhism, the character for refuge literally means returning home. So it's a very different feeling for it than going. I like the word it's actually walking in Pali, Kachami. But the, the Chinese is uh, going for refuge, is said uh, returning to refuge. Returning to what's reliable, returning to what you can depend on. Is a literal a meaning of these two characters, as far as I can understand. In Japanese, it's kia, and um, and that's a, kind of a wonderful. I, I'm inspired by this idea of a homecoming. We go for refuge. We offer our reverence, our awe, our respect, our our attention, our engagement with the Dharma, but we do it in such a way that it's a coming home to ourselves, to our hearts. And unless there's, you know, some challenges at home, uh the the meta the kind of uh, I don't know what to call it, the ideal home, feeling at home, means it's a place where you can just be yourself. You know, you can just you can surrender a certain kind of social self and trying to please people or apologize to people or you know, all kinds of things that we do in our social life. But you're home, it's okay to walk around in your pajamas. It's okay not to have taken a shower. It's okay to, you know, just be this way, just yourself in this way. And um, there's a kind of surrender of so much of the usual self-concern and preoccupation in that act of kind of, of refuge, of going for protection, going for inspiration in the Dharma. And... So this is a quality of the mindfulness practice, of awareness practice, that uh, it's um, you know we take refuge in awareness. It's a homecoming in awareness, and to take and to really offer awareness, offer attention to something, really anything, but certainly to offer it to our 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 body, our breath, our feelings even our thoughts, our mind, all of who we are, to bring that, to think of it as an offering you bring. You're the host for yourself. And you're offering something which is precious, which is being aware, being attentive. And something responds to that. Maybe metaphorically, I like to say, is the heart that resonates and responds. Something in the inner life, something in reality responds. And what is that? And one of the things is that uh, the heart loves the breathing room that is found when we're not self-concerned, self-preoccupied, self-attached. A certain kind of surrender of self-involvement, a certain kind. The kind of surrender of self-concern that leads to the greatest benefit for oneself. So it isn't you're gonna be impoverished by this, but something beautiful responds to this breathing room when we're not claustrophobic and caught up in self preoccupation, self-concern, and we're st- or when we're too caught up in our ambitions or what we're trying to do that we don't notice that in this practice, we're also being done too. And if you're being done too, it's like one way of saying it is that this is so much, we both practice and we're being practiced. The practice does us. The practice begins working. Something inside responds to the practice that we do. But if we're too busy doing the practice, and taking responsibility like it's all up to me and i have to huff and puff and i have to keep trying and you know i have to you know keep letting go and it's just like oh this is a lot of work i have to keep doing it then there's very little breathing room in the heart the mind the body for us to register and take in and experience the, the freedom that's there certain kind of spaciousness that's there when we offer our attention, offer ourselves attentively without, um, you know, while well, we do it, surrendering parts of ourselves. N- n- not abandoning ourselves, but making room for some deeper part of ourselves to begin coming forth. So, the, the, um, so I'm in awe of this path of mindfulness. I've been doing it now for decades. And I think my level of awe, reverence of this practice just keeps growing because I see how effective it is in allowing something, something which is not me, that you could say is inside of me or part of me, but I don't identify it as the usual place of me, myself, and I where karma, where dharma, where the marga, the path, all of these can emerge. And, and, uh, and I feel like I'm kind of uh, being carried by it, or moved by it, or, or uh, uh, animated by it even. It's that kind of deep and intimate. So what I'm saying might not be easy to know or understand or experience, but the principle is we have to do something and we have to allow for something to be done to us. If we only do without the allowing, we don't get the full benefits of this. We don't make room for this deeper process to occur. If you only settle back and allow, then, as Ajahn Samedo said, um, if you just sit if it was only about just sitting and doing nothing else, then chickens would be enlightened. And maybe. I don't know how much I want to push the metaphor, but, you know, if you're too complacent and just expect magic to happen, if you just settle back and let something happen, it doesn't quite work either. You have to, it's just a combination of something you offer and but at the same time as making a room. something deeper to happen. So, what we offer is awareness, is attention. It's very simple awareness, very simple attention to what's happening in the present moment as it's happening. Without really much retrospective thinking about it. There's no need to really spend much time reviewing just what happened. If you have a, a thought arises and it's the most beautiful thought a human being's ever had or the most horrible person's ever had, you don't have to linger with it and say, oh, look, okay, I'm a saint. Oh, no, I'm a awful. And I should figure out what I was doing or something. And you didn't have reviewing at all. There's no need to review. Because when you review, you lose the opportunity to offer this amazing thing, to offer attention to the next moment that comes, the next moment that's here. And so we keep offering attention and make room for our guest, which is ourselves, maybe the Dharma. So then the theme builds on this idea that uh, by saying that um, what we're doing is not what we're doing in a sense is laying down conditions that the Dharma our inner life responds to we're not responsible for the actions that cause the practice to go deeper or fuller we're responsible for the conditions that support the unfolding of the path of the practice and so the practice involves cultivating good conditions so that at some point the conditions come together in just the right way that insights begin appearing if you're in a hurry for the insights impatient for the insights that actually is one of those conditions that makes it more difficult to have insight If you're trying to use your mind to logically analyze, figure out, search for, look for where those insights are hidden, that's not a good condition for allowing the insights room to appear. So it's best to kind of wait for the insights until they come. But that's a little bit hard to appreciate the way it sometimes these three insights are taught, where people assume that they're supposed to believe them or act as if this is true and align themselves with them in some way. And I think sometimes, <clears throat> some people, uh, it actually, it's like putting salt in a womb to emphasize too much these three insights, we call them three characteristics. Uh, the first one is often said to be the insight into impermanence. And I've had people, I remember once some years ago, I was, consult, I was consulting with a group of people who, there was awful things happening in their company, their community. And um, and some of the leaders uh, told, oh, Gil, when you come, can you just tell them about that everything's impermanent? It was supposed to kind of like if I convinced them that everything was impermanent, they were just kind of like, okay, well, it's impermanent here too, and so just things are changing, and I just have to, you know, manage with the impermanence. And uh, I thought it was awful that they were using this Buddhist teaching of impermanence as something to, you know, try to pacify people who were deeply hurt by the changes that were happening. So, and I, I know that uh, there are people who grow up in war zones. They move a lot, maybe from country to country. They don't have a stable home. They don't have any sense of permanence. Everything's always changing and moving. And then they hear the Buddhist teachings that say, "Oh, everything's impermanent," and they just lose hope. You know, if that, you know, it's more of the same. That's what I can expect. I don't know if that's always the message people need to hear. There are people also, you know, who've had horrendous lives, difficult lives, just suffering after suffering after suffering, health problems, family problems, societal problems, just like everything's kind of collapsing around them. It's it's unfortunate what happens to some people's lives. And then they're told, you know, everything is suffering. That's depressing. Like, wow. You know, I, I know I'm know, I suffering. Now everything is suffering. There's more of this. And that's all I can expect. It's kind of like Buddhism. is like a big party pooper. And then there's people for whom this whole idea of identity has been very confused, very difficult. <clears throat> Some people have been, their identity has been squashed and knocked down by events by people, by society and, um, and they kind of like got the message that they don't count for something that they're worthless and then the Buddhists come along and say there's no self, don't worry there's no self then there's even less like oh yes then it, like, now I understand, it's true what I was told about how worthless I am because there's nobody here and somehow it's just confusing the whole thing So I think that there's some danger in these teachings if they're given as something you're supposed to believe or apply or just accept. They're not beliefs. They're insights, which means there's something that we, there's something that happens in the seeing. They're an experience we have that happens in a particular context and the deeper experiences of this insights generally happens to people in the context of meditation retreats. It isn't necessarily something we're supposed to carry with us as an application to all areas of our life. But they have a particular value and importance and they're kind of a phenomenally phenomenal truth at a particular dimension or layer Of human life, and if you go deep in practice, you come to that layer. But if you but if you prepared yourself for that encounter, then it's a lot easier. Not only is that a lot easier, but if you prepared yourself for it, then those insights can do their work on you. They can. Uh, You know, we're being done, too. We're being practiced here in this practice as well. And at some point, these three insights practice us in beneficial ways. And the most beneficial way is that they are freeing. They help free ways that we're attached and caught. The heart is stuck. The heart is closed. The places of greatest fear greatest desires attachments so we prepare ourselves with what we cultivate and that creates a whole different context for the insights when we feel very stable secure coming home to some kind of place of steadiness within we feel like grounded and steady and present upright then seeing the the radical, impermanent nature of experience is felt very differently if we don't have that stability. Maybe it's a paradox. You have to have some degree of permanence, of steadiness, to really encounter impermanence. We cultivate well-being in whatever way we can, degree of happiness and joy, delight, gladness, contentment. So that when we do encounter suffering in this world of ours, both in the external world but also in this inside level, we're prepared for it. It's a whole different way to experience suffering when we have a lot of happiness to hold it some of the most dramatic ways in which I experienced the insight into suffering uh, through retreat practice happened paradoxically seemingly at a time when I had tremendous joy I was blown away by the degree to which I had this encounter this insight into suffering it was like a kind of mind-blowing to see the to see that Pervasiveness of it, but I wasn't disturbed by it. I wasn't distressed or depressed by it, because it was, it was that insight was being held in all of this strong sense of well-being. That was palpable. That was strong. That was it was holding it. It was there to a ballast that allowed me to see it without being crushed by it. And then um, developing some kind of real confidence in the practice and your ability to be show up and be present for things, to have confidence in your own capacities for meeting difficulties in life, to develop a lot of confidence and some kind of strength and a sense of certain kind of efficacy so that when we have insight into what is not self, it's a, you know, it's not like we, we have nowhere to land or nowhere to support or nowhere, nothing that kind of holds us in that experience. There's something there that allows the experience to pass through us without us uh, crumbling in the, you know, in the experience. So we cultivate stability, well-being, and confidence. And I use those three terms as big umbrella terms for all variety of other things that are related. So, it's, you know, it has, it's not just those three things. So then today I want to talk a little bit about the first cultivation, that of stability. It includes things like concentration, developing samadhi, Samadhi is a stable, continuous attention to the flow of the present moment. It includes things like being grounded, really being, really being here, present. It involves a uh, a uh, developing a thread of mindfulness that runs through our days that runs through our experience and I like the the idea of thread because when you sew you dip in with a needle and up out and in and out so it isn't necessarily that the oh, mindfulness is absolutely continuous but if you dip in to be aware maybe you come out for a moment you come back in but it's a thread that goes through the day and there's a constant thread, like on retreat, and we're trying to stay close to that thread. Just wherever we are, whatever we're doing, we try to come back to being aware. Be aware to this. Be present for this. Be aware here. And all the different things that can happen through the day, all the variety of things we're doing, people practicing at home, maybe you're cooking, maybe you're cleaning, maybe you're... Showering, maybe you're using the toilet, maybe you're taking a walk around the neighborhood for a break, taking a nap, maybe you're going to sleep, maybe you're meditating, maybe you're doing walking meditation—all the different things you're doing. It's very—it can be varied, but what's not varied is that thread that you take through all of it. You sewing it all with mindfulness, dipping in and being present dipping in and being present, just keeping that thread going, that continuity. At first, it might not be easy. But the more you let go of your thinking and dip into mindfulness, offer the mindfulness again, something changes inside. And one of the things that changes is that incrementally, imperceptibly, perhaps, Every time you let go of your thoughts and come back to your breathing, come back to your steps as you walk, less mental fuel is is feeding our distracted mind, our thinking mind. And that mental fuel is feeding mindfulness. And slowly, the distracted energy, the pull fuel the energy that wants to go into thinking begins to quiet it's not automatic you can't just turn off your thinking just like that which some meditators expect and they're upset because they're thinking but rather the conditions that supports the thinking mind getting quiet is to let go of your thoughts calm your thinking down a bit and 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 return to the breathing, return to the breathing over and over again. And drop by drop, something will begin shifting, and the energy for thinking will start to decrease, and the energy for being attentive will become stronger. So that's why this kind of this thread of mindfulness of coming back and being present, and one of the places is the thread of uh, being with the breathing. Breathing is always going on for us. And then keep coming back to the breath, you get the benefit of both the continuity of breathing and the continuity of the mindfulness. So offering our breathing, our intention. And then the attention is not being offered to distracted thoughts. The other thing that helps with this is that if there's a lot of thinking, Um, chances are that there's a physical feelings of contraction or tension or pressure, tightness, somewhere in your body that's associated with that strong thinking. If you let go of your thoughts, but that pressure to think is still there, you probably just keep producing more thoughts. But if you can relax the pressure, relax the contraction, the tightness, what I call the thinking muscle, then uh, the, uh, the, uh, the pressure to think decreases. So both to let go of your thoughts, come back to your breathing. But if the thoughts are strong, see if you can see if there's some part of the thinking mind that you can relax. You can calm down. And maybe the thoughts don't stop that way, but qualitatively qualitatively the energy of thinking begins to shift and change in such a way that just coming back to your breathing over over and over again begins to have this desired effect of calming the mind down more and more, and you find yourself more and more present um, before the breathing. And that, that starts building the concentration the samadhi the continuity of attention in the present moment but sometimes we don't feel the benefits of samadhi and concentration so what does stability look like then? one of the the ways of being stable is um, coming home like this refuge thing just coming back to your direct, immediate aliveness, direct immediacy of just being here in a body, present in this body. Can you, even if your body feels restless or tense, is there some way that you could ground yourself in the body, stabilize yourself in the body? In a in you a, know, in a... In a in a a healthy way let the body become still quiet and trust your body settle into the body no matter what happens for example if you're sitting meditating meditating upright it's a powerful thing to sit in meditation and not move In ordinary life, many of us will move mindlessly without thinking. Like I'm sitting here now and I have an itch on my forehead. Like if I'm just like out and about in the world, I probably would have gone like this, you know. Just, I wouldn't even hardly notice I did it. But when I'm meditating, I'm not supposed to do that. I'm supposed to just sit there. As far as I know no one's ever died from an itch in meditation and so by not responding not giving yourself to the to scratching the itch keeping the body still you're cultivating stability you're cultivating a still quiet body that has the capacity not to be impulsive not to give in to urges So it's one thing for an itch. It's another thing if you feel overwhelming sadness. The idea in meditation is that you don't move. And what that means is that you wouldn't collapse in the sadness. You wouldn't go you wouldn't suddenly slump over and put your head or your hand on your forehead in the way that implies, Oh, poor me. Oh, this is overwhelming, this is too much. It might be overwhelming, it might be too much. But we're committed to sitting still and upright. We can still be too much and overwhelming, but we don't succumb to it, we don't collapse into it. We just allow the feelings and emotions to be there, the tears to run down the face. But and we also don't pull back. We also don't get up and run away. We just stay there, still, upright, for whatever comes through during the sitting, Uh, as long as we're not going to hurt ourselves, like with physical pain or something. If you feel like you're going to hurt yourself, harm yourself, physically or emotionally, of course you should change and do something. But the idea is we're developing the capacity to be stable, a certain kind of strength, uprightness, that can be with whatever the experience is. And maybe be with it, breathing through it, breathing with it. And sometimes it's easy, sometimes it's difficult. But what we're doing is developing a kind of strength or a capacity to be present for whatever's here. Mindfulness is a capacity-building exercise. We're trying to expand our capacity to be with what's comfortable and what's uncomfortable. Capacity to be with a full range of our emotions. The capacity to be with a full range of physical experiences that come through our body, including pain. A capacity to be stay present for all the different ways the mind and thoughts. Stories and kind of pass through our mind. The story passes through, and just you you don't give into it. You you don't. Your body doesn't move. There's something very powerful about the body not moving. It's not supposed to be a straitjacket. and you're you're always welcome to actually move during the sitting. You're very welcome to do it if you feel like you need to. Please do. So I'm not, this is not supposed to be this, you know, instructions to put yourself in meditative meditative straitjacket. However, it is instructions that, about what we're trying to cultivate, and as you feel you can do it, as it feels like it makes sense for you, to hold the body upright, still, Unmoving with all the waves of different things that can pass go through you, you're cultivating stability. You're cultivating capacity. You're cultivating. You're learning. It's okay to show up for all kinds of experiences, the joyful ones and the and the painful ones. And there's learning. oh I can do this. I can do this I can be present and it might be one thing to learn to do it or struggle about it or doubt it or protest what I'm saying on the retreat but I've known people who at the end of the retreat like I maybe see them some months later and they'll say you know I had a lot of difficulty at that retreat you know when the retreat was over I wondered you know That was a a lost seven days of my life. You know, nothing happened there. But now that it's been some months, lo and behold, I've gone through some really difficult times in my life. And from that retreat, I learned how to be present for it. I had the capacity to be there for it and not to collapse around it. Thank you for that retreat. I didn't know at the time. Because I didn't get get any of the wonderful fruits that the advertisements talks about. But I learned this beautiful capacity. And you know, my mother was dying in a difficult state and my family was everyone was hysterical. It was so hard. But from that retreat, I learned how to be present and hold it all. I had no idea that's what I was learning in retreat when I sat for those painful knees and I didn't move. So we're slowly developing stability, developing steadiness, being steady with our attention. There's a few things you can do that might support practical things to help this on retreat. One is, as you go through your day outside of sitting and walking meditation, practice doing only one thing at a time. Don't multitask. Just do, and and when you do one thing, do that one thing and see it through to the end, within reason. So, for example, if uh, if uh, you decide to go to the kitchen to start cooking breakfast, or say lunch maybe, to cooking lunch. And then you notice that the mail carrier just dropped off mail for you while you're walking to the kitchen. Don't go check the mail. The one thing you're doing is walking to the kitchen. That's what you're committed to. Go to the kitchen, and once you've gotten there, then you might decide to go check the mail. But, you know, see one thing through to its end. That's simple. Now, the day might be less efficient that way in terms of getting things done, but it might be much more efficient in terms of developing mindfulness. Just do one thing and really be there for it. The other thing you might try doing is whatever you're doing on the retreat, do it at the speed of mindfulness. And what the speed of mindfulness means, do it at whatever speed it takes that your mind doesn't go into automatic pilot wandering off into thought. But so you have some semblance of being present for your experience as you're doing it. It doesn't have to be dramatic presence or dramatic awareness. But at least you're not wandering off in thought and not knowing that's what you're doing. So for some people that means to walk slower than usual, do things slower, whatever pace that keeps you connected so you notice when your mind has a tendency to wander off and so you don't do it so easily. Some people, maybe it's fine to do things fast. Sometimes when I do things slowly, that's when the mind wanders off. If I do things more fast and wholeheartedly, that's where I stay really present. So I'm not telling you what speed you should do things at, but do it at the speed of mindfulness that supports you being, staying present as you do it. And all along, as you do all this, Maybe you'll think about mindfulness as an offering, as a gift that you give. That you're the host, giving the most precious thing that you have, your awareness. And because it's so precious, it's giving yourself in this way to be aware of what's here there is a kind of surrendering, letting go of some of the ordinary self-preoccupations, ordinary ways of thinking about yourself, and ordinary ways of having desires and wants, ordinary ways of being berating yourself, being critical of yourself because you're not doing things right. All that kind of, maybe some of that begins to fall away in this sacred offering of attention to your experience to what's happening now without needing to review what's happened when we fail in meditation if such thing even exists once the failure is over guess what no reviewing you can just let it go and just be present for the next thing that comes the next thing when I was in the monastery I worked in the kitchen for a year. And I got to love working in the kitchen because it was so forgiving. No matter how terrible or good or disaster the meal was, the next day I went to the kitchen, to start all over again. I got to do is you know, that meal was gone and it didn't matter anymore. and Now it's a new meal to make. So Every time you offer mindfulness, you're kind of starting fresh and new. It's very forgiving. One moment after another, the thread that goes through your day, the offering that allows something to settle, some part of you to come home to yourself, the holding yourself still and stable and upright, it is not a constriction, restriction, but a freeing, and opening to a homecoming in your own heart. So your heart is set free. So I hope that for the rest of the day that this idea of cultivating stability, creating the conditions for it, would be helpful for you. And I always have one more thing. And that is that one of the ways to also to cultivate stability in practice is to come to realize it's probably there more often than you know. Rather than making stability, sometimes what's more useful is to quiet down enough notice where the stability already is for you and build on that so thank you and uh, I wish you well in the practice and I look forward to I guess tomorrow I'll start meeting some of you. And uh, I'm looking forward to it very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.